Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Mind to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. And I want to welcome everybody because this is our 97th show. And Happy New Year to everyone, and I hope you all had a good end of year. Today, our guest is from London, England. It's Kareem Harbutt author of The Six Enablers of Business Agility, and it is a fabulous book, and I'm thrilled uh, that he's taken the time to speak with us today. So, uh, Grim, welcome, and did I pronounce your name correctly? Um, well, firstly, thank you for having me on. Uh, it's great to be on. Uh, it's Kareem, like uh, like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Oh, um, perfect. Hopefully you have his hook shot as well. I'm a bit smaller, I'm a bit smaller, but uh, no, it's, uh, it's easy in the States because everybody knows who that is, so everybody gets my name. It's a bit harder in the UK because he's not such a big figure. Well, I'm so glad that you used that as an example, for sure. So let's get started. Uh, please tell us a little bit about your professional background. Sure. Um, so I, I'm a, a software engineer originally. Uh, so I, uh, it was my first, my first job out of university, out of college. Um, and I worked uh, writing writing code and doing all of that, which which actually I really loved. And, and somebody asked me recently why I stopped doing it, and I didn't have a good answer for them. Um, it's just one of those things where you kind of progress through the ranks and you end up doing something else. So uh, I did that for a few years. Then I moved into project management of software projects. Um, then then I found the agile world, uh, and it just felt like it was it just called me, and I really really loved working in that way. So I became what's known as a scrum master, then an agile coach moved into business agility, and now I really focus on, on helping organizations enable business agility, enable innovation, um, and try and shift their cultures and ways of working. So that's been my, 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 my progression, really. I've done a stint in consultancy, and uh, um, now I do a lot of training and consulting around that space. Well, I mean, this is booked as kind of a must-read for anybody who's looking to make those kinds of changes uh, with their companies. So why did you write this book? It's a great question. Um, I, <laughs> I'm not a writer. Okay. Um, I, from from my whole academic career and and and, um, and my actual career, I've avoided anything where you'd have to write essays. Right. I studied mathematics. Was a software engineer. This was not something I did. Um, and I never thought I'd write a book. It was never my aim to write a book. You know, a lot of people say they they really wanted to write a book, but I, I didn't. Um, I collected some knowledge that I thought was really important over the years and, and that I thought I saw so many people failing in this space that I started building this knowledge and then I started running training courses around it. Um, and I was in Austin, actually, in Texas, um, your, your sort of uh, your side of the pond. And uh, somebody at a conference sort of approached me. They'd seen my talk, um, I think, on a kind of modern management approaches. And uh, they, they asked me if I'd ever considered writing a book. And I said, not really, but I, you know, I could consider it. Um, and so I did consider it and uh, actually it seemed like a, a really interesting prospect in order to reach more people more easily. Um, and I ended up sending a proposal in and they, they really liked it. And then, and then it dawned on me that I actually had to write this thing. Um, and I spent 18 months doing it. So, I mean, and the reason really is I just wanted to broaden my reach. Uh, there's only so many people I can train in person and, and I can reach a lot more people with the book. And I thought that the, the, the knowledge was valuable enough for me to, to do that. So uh, I went through I went through that pain, but I was it was actually a very rewarding experience. Well, for somebody who is not a writer, you really did a great job of conveying all your concepts. I mean, it's a really well done uh, book and I hope people are going to get this book. You, you, you. Your title mentions business agility. Uh, please yeah. define it and what good companies do make sure that they are agile. It's a it, yeah. I, I I like that distinction. Agile business agility, right? Because I, I came originally. I was from the agile space, and, and agile itself originated from software development. It's the manifesto for agile software development, which was written in two thousand and one, 
And that was my space. I was helping organizations build software products with a level of agility. Now, what does agility mean? It means recognizing that we don't know all of the answers up front because the world's very complex and it changes very quickly uh, and, and things emerge as you go and you better be able to respond quickly, easily and cheaply to that in the software context. And it was actually a mentor of mine, uh, Mike Beadle, um, who interestingly enough was one of the original authors of the manifesto. He said to me, hey, you know that you can have whole organizations be agile rather than just building software and doing it in the IT. He's like, and actually most of the effective organizations are agile organizations. They have what's known as business agility. And he set me off in that space. So, so what is business agility compared to agile is the question I get. Um, if you think about an organization, right, you can think about organizations that are really, really good at doing what they do today and what they've always done. Um, and, and you can take Blockbuster as, a, as an example of that. But they're really, really bad at evolving when the world changes around them. They can't respond quickly because they are designed to do one thing in the same way. And some organizations are just incredibly good at seizing the moment when, when a new technology or a new business model or a new opportunity comes up and shifting their whole business model to be something else. So Netflix is a great example of that, moving from DVD rentals online to, to streaming. Amazon is a fantastic example of that, right? Book retailer to the everything store to Amazon Web Services to Kindle to you name it, they are innovating and they have many, many business models now. So, you know, really do, doing what you do well today is incredibly important, right? But when the world changes, if you can't change with it, you will you will go the same way as Blockbuster and, and Nokia um, and all of them, Borders and all of these companies. So business agility is, can we pivot our business model, reinvent ourselves over time when necessary and ideally even ahead of time? So that's how I describe it. I, I think that when the entrepreneur leaves, and the board, who are typically made up of finance people, put somebody that they feel is a seasoned manager and makes them feel comfortable. It's now it's only going to go downhill from there. I mean, even if you have this great product, I mean, Steve Ballmer did a really good job of doing nothing for a decade at yeah. Microsoft, but it had a product that you just couldn't, a golden goose you couldn't kill. And it just kept spinning off money. But now the new guy came in and he's kind of like an entrepreneur. And look yeah. what he's done to Microsoft. But all those companies like Blockbuster and Borders and everything are, you know, instead of thinking about cannibalizing their own business, right? They didn't think about that. And they just tried to stay with the same model. And you talk about Kodak in the book. And we're going we're gonna to dive into all of these different things. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a quick overview as we dive into your book about the six enablers and what, what they are? Yeah. Um, so, so this 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 was born out of my frustration of, of working with being brought into organizations. They're saying we want to be more agile. And, and they they then say, right, we need to focus on our processes, our practices. Uh, we need to learn some new frameworks, Scrum being one of them, but there are many other frameworks. Um, and and that's it. Um, and then it fails and they say this doesn't work here. And over the years, I kind of built up this, well, no, it won't work here unless you address all these other things. I actually initially was uh, called my model the six uh, impediments to business agility, um, but I, I renamed it to enablers because I, I'm trying to be a bit more positive, right? So what are they? So we've got um, you've got leadership and management, right? Because working in a more entrepreneurial way takes a very different style of leadership. You've talked about the finance folk, the Steve Ballmers, the John Scullys, if you like, of the world. And, and they, they have a very different style of leadership, moving away from the command and control micromanagement to enabling people and getting the best out of your employees. And setting the direction and decentralizing that decision-making is incredibly important. So it's a different style of leadership there. So leadership and management is the first one. The second one very much focuses on culture, organizational culture. If you don't have an enabling culture, then very little else is going to matter. Um, and you mentioned you know, Satya Nadella taking over at Microsoft. Great example of a transformation uh, of the culture in that organization to one of um, milking what you've got to one of experimentation and, and, and transparency and enableness and vision and purpose, right? So, so culture is incredibly important and powerful as the second. The third one is of structure, moving away from these silos where you've got these functional silos, people can't talk to each other, to these cross-functional teams who collaborate and work together to get job done. Um, and so we see that happening a lot is the third. The fourth one, probably the most important is people and engagement, 
right? Because if you don't have highly engaged people um, who really care about the organization, who, who are treated well with really great modern HR policies, you know, if you're still rooted in the industrial revolution of individual incentives and individual productivity, you're not going to stand a chance. That's the, the fourth one there. Um, fifth one, governance and funding. I hate to, hate to say it, but the money is important. Right. If you if you're expecting these big upfront uh, business cases with fixed scopes, fixed time, predicting the world like we can see into the future, you're going to have some troubles. But whereas if you can enable the, the organization to experiment, lots of small, safe to fail experiments and double down on the ones that work, kill the ones that don't like a venture capitalist would, then you're going to have far more chance of success. And then finally, the, the sixth one is those, those processes, practices, frameworks, and tools, what I call ways of working. And this typically is the only one organizations focus on. And I'm saying, no, that's important, but the other five are vital enablers too. And if you ignore them, you're probably going to fail. So, uh, you know, I, I had many iterations of the model, but, but where I finally landed was, was those six. Um, and again, you, you know, you can slice and dice it any way you like, but that's the six that I chose. Well, I, and I think they were smart because they're digestible. Each one of those things is digestible and logical. So I think that that would resonate not only with the C-suite, but also the board as well. Uh, you yeah. write about working with lots of companies that have gone through transitions and that you, that you got a lot wrong yourself and, and just as much and probably right. What does a good transition look like and what are the landmines to avoid? Oh, wow. Um, so the first landmine I think we just touched on is, is that narrow focus, right? The, the thinking that you just have to send the team on a, on a course and then suddenly they're going to come back and work in a different way without changing anything in the organization. And, um, and the analogy I, I use for that, I, well, I use a few, all right, but um, if you try and if you try and install an, an Android app on an iOS phone, on an iPhone, right, it's just not going to work because you haven't created the environment for it. Right? You actually you need to create the organizational operating system using those other enablers. So, so that's a that's the first landmine. Um, the second landmine, and probably one of the most important, is this needs to be driven from the top. Like almost every successful transformation and transition in any organization is driven from the top, whether it's Satya Nadella at Microsoft, whether it's General Stanley McChrystal at the Joint Special Operation Command out in, out in Iraq, um, or, or whether where any organization you can think of. It's driven from the top because these are big structural changes. And every time I go into an organization, they say, yeah, we've got this middle level manager, they're running it. And I say, are they empowered to change the organizational structure, the culture, the leadership style, the governance funding policies? No, not really. Well, then you're gonna have a big problem. Even if you have buy-in from the top, they don't need, they need to do more. They need to drive it. I mean, that's the probably the biggest indicator of success for me who is driving this transformation. Um, um, and kind of the third one I'll throw in there is, are the changes you're making consistent, coordinated, and coherent? But Because if they're not all moving you towards a shared vision, if it's all just ad hoc changes, then you're all rowing in different directions. So we need to be super clear over what is the vision? What do we want to achieve? How will we know what we're moving in that direction? And what are some changes, experiments we can run that are consistent, coordinated, and coherent with each other towards that vision? I mean, it sounds so easy, right? But I mean, these things don't happen in most transformations, and, and those would be the top three for me. It's funny you should say it because I, I taught 10 years at Wharton, and I had students at Microsoft. I was there in 2003 or 2013, and my students who were at Microsoft said it was a bunch of warlords, each running their own little fiefdom under Balmer. But then the ones who worked at Apple said there's one God, and that was Steve Jobs, and he had one vision, and everybody got on that vision. Everybody was excited about that vision, and and they out you know out innovated Microsoft by a lot, right? Like by years and years. So yeah. and that was like a great example. And I kept thinking about that all the time when you work with companies and you see why they don't make it. Because if the guy at the top isn't leading that charge, everybody else is not going to fall in uh, no, for that. And it's not. just lip service. Uh, so we have a question from the audience. There are many books trying hard, differentiating leadership from management. How does Kareem think about that? Yeah, I conflated the two there, didn't I? Um, by, with leadership and management. Um, I, I can, and, I, and I mentioned that. I said, look, leadership for me is where are we going 
What are we trying to, to achieve? What is the direction of travel? Management is much more about execution, right? But but those things, it's a sliding scale, right? I mean, you're there, there wherever you are in the in the chain there. So when I say leadership and management, I really do talk about both of those things. But um, leadership largely remains in in a, in a similar place. You need to create the culture, the structure, the strategy, the direction. Management changes quite a lot because we decentralize a lot of decision-making. We have self-managing teams who don't do whatever they want, right? They're still moving in the direction the leaders want, but they work out the best way to get there. They're the ones who work out how to do the work. So actually a lot of the management gets pushed down to those doing the work and the leadership, it becomes even more important that everyone's aligned. So I make that distinction. Others make it slightly differently, but uh, but that's, that's how I see it. You write the two key drivers for what you do uh, increasing organizational agility and increasing people's engage- engagement. Why did you pick those two? I'm passionate about both of those things. When, when you boil it down um, to, you know, what is it I'm trying to do? I'm trying to help organizations be more effective. But the one of the ways to do that is you have to have engaged people who really turn up to work. You know, my wife uses the phrase, you know, go to work with a spring in your step in a, on a Monday morning, right? You can tell people when people are really passionate about their job and you can tell people who just kind of turn up, get through the day and go home, right? I mean, I mean you look at the best organizations, um, they have truly engaged people. So there's a business reason for it. It's a personal reason for it. I, I think everyone deserves to be in a job that is fulfilling and that they enjoy and that actually they're passionate about. And I've got two little girls and I don't want them to grow up and to go to work and hate their job for 40 years, 50 years, however long they have to work for, right? and then retire. I want people to genuinely feel like they're contributing to something. So that's a very personal thing for me. I, I want to create organizations that people love to work in, but with a view to those organizations being really, really great uh, at the, giving customers great products and, and achieving business agility. So those two things for me, very, very linked, but, but incredibly important, both of them. And, they're my drivers. That's what gets me up. Uh, that's what my daughter says every day. Uh, my oldest, she's 31 and she has a global marketing practice. And she's fielded, you know, she's thinking about what does she want to do for the long term? And she's very successful with it. But that's the most important thing to her. And I think your whole generation of seeing people before you go into jobs and see that. I think the last survey I saw, I think it's uh, only uh, 42, uh, maybe anywhere between 22 and 42 percent of people like what they even do every day. The rest of them are miserable uh, having to do whatever that is. So that's unfortunate. And life is too short. Yeah. I, I, to the, the, the figures I used, Gallup stated the global workforce uh, um, um, report, and they had it as 15 percent engaged in what they do. 67 percent are not engaged, which means they're psychologically detached. They're turning up, but they don't care. Right. And the rest of people are actively disengaged. That's terrible. Right, fifteen percent. Um, I mean, it differs country to country, but globally, that's the that's the number. It's just not good enough. I think that's why entrepreneurs are so happy, even if they're struggling and they're just eking out a living. At least they feel like, oh my god, I'm waking up every morning excited about what I'm doing. So I think yeah. that's why that's the case. In chapter one, you write about a company's ability to explore new opportunities and exploit current products and services. How does this fit into a company being more agile and what skills are required? Yeah, and specifically, are are they the same skills? Because the key point is very, very different skills are required on either side. Let me quickly explain explore and exploit. um, When you're exploiting an existing product, service, or business model, it's proven, right? So you're executing, it's execution. Um, And that's, if you're a pharmaceutical company, that will be um, manufacturing the the drug, packaging, shipping, marketing, selling a drug that's already on the market, right? It's just exploiting the thing you have. Exploring is creating new products, new services, new business models, right? So some some organizations don't do this. They just just exploit what they've got until what they've got isn't wanted anymore, then they disappear, right? And we've mentioned some companies that have done that. But some organizations think, you know, as well as what we've got today, we need to look to the future and, and a pharmaceutical company would be R&D on new drugs, right? Um, trying to experiment to create this new product and bring that to market. Now, you can see there are very, very different skill sets needed to execute against an existing drug or uh, so to research and development a new drug. And it's the same with business models. Executing against a, a, a proven product, service, or business model takes 
it's basically execution, right? It's making it a bit more efficient, uh, making people a bit more productive. It's forecasting uh, based on last year. Whereas what you're talking about on explore is innovation. It's a completely different skill set. It's experiments. It's it's kind of business strategy to to come up with new products and services and to to make them scalable, profitable, profitable and repeatable. Um, you've got design thinking in there. You've got um, uh, product developments in there, and a whole bunch of stuff. And they are very different. And most organizations treat both sides the same. And that's why they're either good at one or good at the other. The few like Amazon do them both incredibly well, but they treat them differently. And that's the key point I'm trying to make for a lot of the book. And, and maybe you just answered this question, but a question from the audience is, um, how do I build the correct structure and what does it look like? <laughs> well, how do you build the correct car and what does it look like? Right, It depends what you're after. Um, if you want a, a big family car or if you want a sporty little number, right? But um, let's assume that you want what we call an ambidextrous organization. That's one that can exploit efficiently what it's got and explore with agility new ideas, right? Um, so you do both of those things. Then you need a separate org structure. Maybe the traditional organizational structure is okay on the exploit side. Maybe the hierarchy and the more traditional 12-month, um, three-year planning works better because there's less uncertainty there. But on the other side, what you need is small cross-functional teams, actually networks of interconnected teams um, that are working together towards a common goal. It's much more dynamic. It's much more empowerment. There's much more experimentation. So you need different cultures, different structures, different policies of investment, many small safe-to-fail experiments rather than big annual planning cycles. Right? And those are so different that they need to be physically separate. I mean, they might be in the same office, they might not but they are very, very different sides of the organization. So typically you have this layer across and then crucially, you don't want to be too far away that you are starved, but you don't want to be so close that you're sucked into the old culture. So you need this kind of connector where you can leverage the capabilities and assets, but be far enough away. It's kind of an arm's length relationship with a thin layer of leadership over the top is what I would uh, advise there. You have an example in your book and I'm forgetting what that example was, but you gave that example because... There are companies who decide, you know what, we better not have this thing inside the organization or it's going to fail. The organization will suck, suck the lifeblood out of it. But I think yeah. you mentioned in, in your book that you do need to have it as part of the organ inside the organization, but in a different way. Yeah. And, and this is um, a lot of research that was done by two gentlemen called O'Reilly and Tushman. And uh, uh, and and their, their book is called Lead and Disrupt. It's, it's very, very good. It got a good HBR article if you'd rather read that. Yeah. Um, and and uh, and and so yeah, they've said if you're if you're too close, you you kind of end up end up working in, in the kind of old ways and, and then you can't can't be successful. But if you're too far away, you get starved of resources. Because remember, before you establish the a scalable, profitable, repeatable business model, you don't have much revenue coming in. So if you think, ah, oh, I need some marketing capability or I need this technology or I need some some of that. Um, you want to leverage what the parent company has. So yeah, you want to be far enough away so that you can be autonomous, but close enough so that you can you know, go and ask go and ask for help when you need it. It's like when you, you first graduate college and you move out of house, but you can still go back and eat your parents' food, right? It's a little bit like that. Uh, so um, yeah, it's that, that fine balance, uh, arm's length distance. But yes, too close can be incredibly dangerous because you're expected to work like everyone else. And we know that that doesn't work for innovation. Um, so you've got to be careful on that one. A question from the audience. With different personalities filling different positions, bringing various backgrounds, spheres, and different levels of emotional intelligence, how would you go about aligning your company culture? <laughs> uh, so what I'll say is you will have subcultures in an organization. There, there won't be one culture. Um, different departments um, different sides. Obviously, the exploit culture will be very different to the explore culture, It'll be much more entrepreneurial and experimental on that side, uh, and much more about efficiency on the other side, right? But, uh, you know, how do you align culture? Well, you have to align your vision, right? You have to know your purpose, your vision, what you're trying to achieve, why you exist, what your values are. It's really important to start there. And then you can start consciously designing the culture you want as an organization, but also the subcultures that you want, because your compliance department and your R&D department will have very different cultures, and they should, right, because they're trying to achieve very different things. So in a sense, what, what I would say is you, you probably need to, to have an overall culture, but also an idea of what your subcultures will be. 
consciously design that. Now, I describe culture in the book as like a shadow on the wall. You can't directly change the culture, but you can directly change the things that cause the culture. Um, and so you need to be very mindful of how you how you do that. And um, um, it's people's behaviors that lead to the culture. And you can design systems that influence behaviors right? by changing structures, policies, incentives, metrics, and leadership behaviors. You will see behaviors change and therefore a new culture emerge. So, um, but of course, there's no point in creating a culture that isn't aligned to the broader vision and, and values of the organization. So it's, it's a really, really complex thing, culture, and you won't get it right first time. But with, with experimentation and tracking, you can definitely improve significantly on that front. Uh, what companies have done this well? Like when you've studied this, which ones do you really are impressed with or even ones that you look at now and you say, gosh, these guys really have gotten it done well? Yeah, uh, so I've mentioned it before, but one of the best transformations of culture will be Satya Nadella when he took over as, as CEO of Microsoft. Completely different style. Steve Jobs, of course, when he came back to Apple, I think it was 1997, right, transformed the culture. Yeah. In fact, they had many iterations of their culture. The initial Jobs years, then the post-Jobs years, then the, the second Jobs years uh, really evolved well. Um, smaller company, uh, Semco, out in Brazil, led by Ricardo Semler, uh, and he read, he read, he wrote a book called Maverick um, about how he transformed that culture of the organization. Really great read. Um, um, some other ones I mentioned: Stanley McChrystal uh, at the JSOC Joint Special Operations Command. I mean, this is this is fighting terrorism in Iraq. Complete culture transformation in the moment. It's a really wonderful story um, there, um, and 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 many others. I, I would look at Netflix and and how their culture works uh, because it's a really really interesting culture that they have. And 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 so I mean there are I could go on, um, but um, so what what I found is there are lots of really great cultures. There are very few who transitioned from one culture to another successfully and in an enduring way. And that's why I'd point you to uh, Hit Refresh by Satya Nadella. Yeah. You wrote about the fall of Middle Eastern dictators during the Arab Spring. What can businesses learn from that? And why is the pace of change accelerating so quickly? And Anji, you know, all of these guys were in power 20 years. They owned the army, the Navy, secret police, you know, everything. And in a very short period of time, all of these guys were ousted. I mean, we even saw that in Romania with, I forget the Romanian dictator's name, but he was in power for 25 years and within 10 days, uh, yeah. he was murdered. Yeah, and the pace of changes, I mean, that's why I talk about it, right? Because, you know, this, uh, you know, this, this Tunisian street vendor named Mohamed Bouzizi, you know, he set himself alight. Um, in in a in a small 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 town in uh, in Tunisia and and it was it was four weeks later right the twenty seven year reign of the of the president of Tunisia had gone right, right. The, the Hosni Mubarak gone Colonel Gaddafi gone Syria descends into civil war which is still going right yeah. uh, now why did it happen so quickly and and I often ask this question right because going back in time that wouldn't have happened that quickly. But think about it. What happened at his funeral? People had smartphones. They filmed it. They uploaded it. It spread quickly. Right? That wouldn't have happened before. Even ten years before, there was you know the Nokia phones didn't have videos. Right? There was no YouTube. There was no Facebook. So what's happened is technological advances and the increased interconnectedness means that things spread much more quickly. We've also seen it with Me Too. We've seen it with Black Lives Matter. Right? Um, it, things change very quickly. The mood changes very quickly because of that interconnectedness. Um, and uh, I think it was, I forget the gentleman's name, but he, he had his guitar broken uh, on a on a flight and they wouldn't fix it. So he, he wrote a song called United Breaks Guitars. I think it was United Airlines, right? And their share price, their share price lost like kind of 10% of its value because 20 million people viewed this video, right? I mean, these are the kinds of things. It's technology. It's the technological change that's driving this as well as um, deregulation and reduced barriers to entry for other organizations to spring up. It's a perfect storm, um, but it's a really exciting time to be an entrepreneur. Uh, the best. Can you explain the concept of the butterfly effect and why is this important? Yeah. So this goes back to a story from 1961, actually, uh, and Edward Lorenz, uh, mathematician, running, running weather pattern experiments at uh, MIT. Um, on what passed as a computer back then. And uh, he was trying to predict the weather 
Uh, and he, uh, Suze had 12 variables and he, you know, he ran it through once, ran it through again a second time from halfway through and it got a completely different result. Um, and it turns out there was a minuscule rounding error in one of those 12 variables. And he thought, how can one tiny rounding error here lead to such a different result in the weather? So he started um, researching this uh, and this is, you know, he gave a talk nine years later, predictability, does the flap of a butterfly's wings in Brazil cause a tornado in Texas? What right. he found was, and the, the kind of the, the ideology, this kind of Newtonian mechanics was if you have a small change in the input, you get a small change in the output. Um, and that's how the scientific community thought. And he said, no, there are some complex interconnected systems where a small change in the input can lead to a dramatic change in the output. And the weather is one of those, right? Um, but I think with innovation and technology, it's the same. Um, and so what, what that really shows is that, like, that with the tiniest change, you can go from success to failure, right? If Mark Zuckerberg had done things slightly different, maybe he'd just be another failed entrepreneur. Uh, um, maybe not, right? But what we, what that shows us is because these things are so sensitive to small changes that we can't predict exactly what's going to happen. Now, what we need to do is experiment because a small tweak here or a small tweak there can make all the difference. This is why we do uh, multivariant testing on websites, A-B testing, because we just don't quite know what's going to make that dramatic effect happen. And I use this example because you couldn't possibly have predicted that. But it happened. And so let's stop trying to pretend we can know in advance. Let's experiment and let's learn quickly and let's be agile enough to respond to that. So I, I like that example because it just it's it, we, we, we're, we get a lot of engineers in my in my uh, line of work thinking they can plot their route to the future with with certainty. And, and they really can't. Yeah, we've, <laughs> we've seen that. And as entrepreneurs, if all of us could do that, we'd all be billionaires. Um, but only. Less than 1% actually end up making uh, money. Uh, we live in the age of, uh, this is a question from the audience. We live in the age of information explosion and always apparent from other countries and languages. How would you keep up so you don't miss the boat? With, with, with all of the, the, the things that are happening? Yeah, right around the world. I mean, there are, like ideas are springing up from everywhere. It's just not Silicon Valley uh, or Austin, Texas or New York or Philadelphia. I mean, it's literally in Israel. It's literally coming from all parts of the world. So how do you keep up with all the change and new ideas? Well, you, well, you don't keep up with all of them, right? I mean, yeah. from, from cryptocurrencies to, to NFTs to, to, I mean, there's just so many things out there. Um, but, but reading a lot, I mean, you know, what, what, you, what you have to do is most people are in a, an industry, right? So keeping tabs on an industry is, is doable. And let's say if, if you're if you're in retail, you don't necessarily have to be a master of cryptocurrencies, but you have to be aware that they're a thing and what the impact of your on your organization might be. You know, not everybody is going to be the pioneer whose product changes the world like the iPhone did, but you can do very well as an organization with business agility if you are if you respond quickly, right? So when you see something is happening when you see that Jeff Bezos is launching this, that, or the other, or, or Elon Musk, and you can think, you know what, actually, that's something I should pay attention to. It's one thing knowing that that's something you have to pay attention to. It's another thing being designed to respond quickly to that. So you don't necessarily have to be the first one there, but you've got to be able to respond quickly and easily and cheaply because there's no way you can keep on track of everything. But you know, you know that the rough things that you can keep top, keep on top of, right? And uh, in my industry, I do a lot of training, and you know, we're we're, we're a lot of people pivoting to um, on-demand uh, subscription model training-based things, right? This isn't necessarily cutting-edge technology. But from a business model perspective, it's very different, right? So uh, I don't keep your eyes open and, and what's going to impact you the most, I'd say, is, uh, is where you should be focusing. Well, the fact that he listens to this show is important too. He hears all yes. these great ideas from your, yourself and other author, authors. I find myself reading 20 hours a week. And uh, the best thing that I read is the Harvard Business Review. That's my favorite uh, magazine. And I, Wall Street Journal and Inc, and Inc is my other uh, favorite magazine. And anything yeah. on innovation, and that—that that to me is, if you're not a reader, and you're going to be left behind for sure. You have to read. I'm going to throw one thing in there because I love all the ones you mentioned. But uh, uh, I subscribe to a newsletter called Trends, Trends.io uh, or .co, I think it is. And uh, it's a—it's uh, a vibrant Facebook community. It's a newsletter, and 
literally its purpose is to identify the trends that are coming in advance. And there's so much great content on there. And uh, Sam Parr is the, is the founder of that. I've got so much value from that. It's really great. And it's called, I'm going to type it in, Trends. Trends. Uh, yeah. And Sam Parr is the founder. If you just Google, uh, I think HubSpot just acquired it. But uh, I think, uh, yeah, Sam Parr uh, Trends and you'll, you'll find that. I, 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 it's, a, it's, a, it's a paid, uh, I think it's a, it was a spinoff from The Hustle. Um, but uh, I found that really valuable. Uh, now I'm going to go look to subscribe to that. Now you've added an extra hour onto my week. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> In the book, you mentioned there's a difference between complicated and complex systems. What yes. are they and why is that important to now? So a complicated, and this goes back to the butterfly effect, right? A complicated system is a is a system that may have many moving parts, but each part is um, only interacts with a few other parts. I would say a car engine is complicated. It takes expertise to understand it. If I open the you know, the, the, the the bonnet of my car and I look at the engine, all I see is a jumble of stuff I don't understand. Um, however, my father-in-law is a is a mechanic, and which is lucky because i know nothing right and when he looks at it he understands it right so he's got that expertise he can see which things connect to everything else he knows if you do this this will likely happen that's a complicated system and engineers design complicated systems building a bridge is a complicated system there are rules that exist okay um, and and if we know these rules we can largely predict what a complicated system will do a complex system has many moving parts, but each moving part interacts with many other moving parts. Think of an ecosystem in a rainforest, right? If you take away one species of mosquito, what will the knock-on effect of that be? Well, you don't really know because everything is interacting with everything else. However much expertise you have, you don't know what will happen because everything is interconnected. That's what we would call a complex system. So compli complicated systems may need expertise, but they are ultimately ordered and predictable. Complex systems can just seem utterly random because you can't model them. Our little brains can't get our heads around it. And the reason this is important is that complex work, innovation, product development, is not knowable in advance. I can't tell you exactly what product is going to be successful. Very rarely does someone say, this is what we need and it works. It's about learning and experimenting because of all the moving parts. Um, and so you approach that very differently in a much more experimental way. Whereas if you're doing complicated work, you can be much more predictive in your planning and follow your standard Gantt chart plan and, and probably not come up with too many issues. That's a really important concept and it kind of plays into explore and exploit. So uh, um, without diving into complexity science, I'd urge you to read um, Dave Snowden's work around Kenevin um, and lots of other people uh, write very well about this better than me. <laughs> well, I just, I understand it enough. Uh, you write about the differences between ambiguity and vague. Why yeah. is this important? So uh, that's that's part of the, the section on VUCA, right? Volatility, yeah. uncertainty, yeah. complexity, and, uh, and ambiguity. Because ambiguity tends to be misunderstood. We largely know that volatility is around the pace of change. Uncertainty around an inability to predict the future. Complexity is many moving parts um, uh, interacting. Ambiguity, people tend to, to think of as a lack of data, vagueness. Um, but it's not. It is a, you have lot, you have more data than we've ever had. But the fact is, Drawing conclusions from that data is very difficult. Many people will interpret it differently. All right. So um, often you hear people say, you had all the information. How did you not join the dots? You ever heard that? Like a, yes, an inquiry yeah, into something dots. that's happened. Yeah. 2008 crash or, or, or all of these things. How did you not join the dots? Um, well, there are millions of dots. And some are relevant and some are not. And some connect like this and some connect like that. And if you don't know how they connect, you can interpret very, very different things. Uh, by, by that data. So ambiguity is the fact that you can draw many different interpretations from that data, uh, and we don't know which one's right. So we have this state of ambiguity because we don't know exactly what the current situation is. Very similar to uncertainty. Why is it more difficult? Uh, why is the more difficult challenge knowing if you're working on the right thing? So, yeah, again, this is another um, big change in the last 100 years. But during the Industrial Revolution, when Henry Ford was knocking out Model T after Model T after Model T, he knew he was making the right thing. He just needed to do it a little bit cheaper and a little bit cheaper, which is why the moving assembly line was so revolutionary. Right? Um, so his biggest problem was, how can I create this known thing for uh, as cheaply as, and efficiently as possible? 
but we when we are in innovation right we our problem isn't how can i create this known thing um as cheaply as possible our problem is how can i know what the right thing is how can i know what products will delight my customer and which business model will will work for the customer but also for work for me as an organization and the answer is that you can't until you start trying things so early on on the explore side your biggest problem is learning and discovering in uh, a design thinking is a great example of this discovering what the right solution is as you scale the product out and it becomes more mature then your bigger problem becomes how can i deliver on this efficiently and that's when you've transitioned into exploit so um we very much go into this world and lots of people who have traditional training it's all about how can i do this more cheaply but they're missing the fact that we don't know what this is in the complex very very quickly changing world so um that's the that kind of the number one problem which means actually efficiency isn't your 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 biggest indicator of effectiveness actually it's doing the right thing that's that's important um it's a great uh, quote from uh, i think it was deming is like you know if before you start climbing the ladder make sure it's leaning up against the right wall um and i think that <laughs> that says it all yeah that that is a great quote and you use a lot of stuff from him throughout the book uh, yeah. Why does it take long for paradigm shifts to be accepted? Is it because leaders are in denial or they don't see it until the changes uh, are too late? Or are there some, you know, you had some good examples in the book about this. So why is that? Um, it was Stephen Covey, not Deming. Thank you. Uh, Deming, uh, Deming had a slightly different version of it. Thanks, Barry, for the correction. Um, um, uh, yeah. I. So why does it take so long? It takes so long because for a couple of reasons. One, because normally um, the the people that need to change to the paradigm shift are the most invested in the current way of doing things. So in short, they don't want to change because well, they, they've built their whole existence on this this paradigm, and now we're saying this is a new paradigm, and now well, I don't want that paradigm. I'm happy where I am. I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm a senior executive in this company. And, um, I, I'm just going to stay as I am. And, and by the time it's a problem, I've probably retired anyway. All right. And um, because it's remember, it's a very risky thing to transform an organization. Very risky thing. Now, unless your organization's about to die like Apple was in 97, in which case it's just like roll the dice. But you know, if you're a leader and you're thinking, you know, I could just keep doing what we're doing and maybe be a little bit better and if the organization dies in 10 years time, that's fine because I've got another 10 years left and I'll probably make a whole load of money in that time and that's okay. Right? Um, whereas if you say we need to transform the organization in one or two years time, it's going badly, you'll probably get fired. Um, and in that case, that's bad for you. So um, what tends to happen is you know, the, the paradigm shift, uh, we know this stuff, but it, it, we need a generation or two um, to, to sort of move on before a generation come through that are natives to this way of thinking, I think, which is why it often takes kind of 20 to 40 years. And, uh, and I, told, I put a few examples in there uh, where, where, where that's happened. Um, but um, I think ultimately, you know, we just need to, we just need the natives to come through, like the digital natives are coming through into business now, right? And it took a long time for businesses to really embrace the digital ways of working. But now they have to, because the people leading these organizations were born into the internet age, right? The people, people around my age who kind of remember pre-internet, but not really. Um, and so that's why it takes so long for me. Yeah. And people are forgetting that these changes, like you just said, they take decades to happen. I mean, when you think about when Amazon started and all I thought about was that they would just be selling books and who would have guessed? I mean, you could have bought that stock in 1999 for $6 a share. And now it's like 3000 and change. Yeah. And everybody on this call could have bought a hundred shares of that stock and been pretty set uh, for a long term or a thousand shares of that stock. You wouldn't even be listening to this show probably. So uh, what, what is brief perseverance and how does that impact leadership decisions? Um, belief perseverance. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's people doubling down on their worldview in spite of the evidence uh, and and I, and I think it's it, that happens because um, a number of reasons. Uh, you know, building on on what I just said, but you know, we think that if we just show someone the evidence, then then we can convince them. But but that that almost never happens. Actually, what happens is they just get even more committed to their way of thinking once you get into that sparring match. 
And it just, it doesn't happen. And again, for the reasons is that these people are so bought into the old way of thinking that to, to change that is almost to sort of say that they've been doing it wrongly for the last 20 years. And, uh, and, and we saw this happening when, uh, you know, with the, uh, uh, with the doctor saying, you know, you just need to wash your hands and we'll stop infecting these, these pregnant, um, pregnant mothers when they're giving birth and these babies will stop dying. All you need to do is wash your hands because you're, I mean, who would have thought they were, they were performing autopsies and then going and delivering babies without washing their hands. And this guy was saying, and he saw this precipitous drop in the rate of infections by saying, look, if you wash your hands, babies don't die. And he was still not believed, right? These doctors were saying, what a load of rubbish, despite the evidence because they were so bought into their worldview. And who is this junior doctor from, from someone and someone they'd never heard of to tell them how to do their job, right? It's incredible. Now, if somebody performed an autopsy and then delivered a baby without washing their hands, they'd be struck off and quite right. Um, but it took, it took decades. And actually, it was when those older doctors moved on and the newer, younger doctors came up thinking, yeah, this actually makes sense because it wasn't it wasn't so new to them. It didn't go against their 20 years of practice. So belief perseverance is, an, is a as a uh, another thing that, that kind of plays into to why these paradigms take so long to actually shift. It's just, we think with data, we can convince people very often it doesn't happen. Yeah, I, <laughs> I know that from being an entrepreneur and my own ventures thinking, my God, they're perfectly logical. But yet the banking industry doesn't want to make this change, even though it makes perfect sense for them. We could talk about that in our time. And in Panama with malaria, yeah, that almost sunk the whole country of France um, because France was building the Panama Canal and they didn't realize that you had to put pots over water or bugs got in and that's what spread malaria. And a doctor mm -hmm. found it and people were pushing back against it until they went bust. And then the U.S. came in and um, bought out everything with the canal for like, you know, pennies on the dollar. And then the U.S. ended up running for 100 years. <laughs> yeah, right. they did well out of that, didn't they? Um, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, but even to the point, right, when, when, um, when Netflix started to be successful, the, there was a, I mean, Blockbuster said, hey, we need to respond to this. And they did a study. And their conclusion was that people like going out to their local video store and wait for it. They like the, the the thought that they might have a serendipitous interaction with a neighbor in the store. <laughs> uh, no, people want to sit in their pajamas and watch whatever they want, whenever they want, actually. Right? But but they still, and they did a study and they convinced themselves they were on the right track. It's just, you can't, like, you just can't help some people. And you, th and you think to yourself, that just sounds crazy. Um, I, I would venture to say that every project is memorialized with a contract. Why do you write that those contracts can inhibit learning and change? Yeah, well, this is um, this is actually one of the the four value statements of the original manifesto for agile software development, right? Uh, it was customer collaboration over contract negotiation because contracts can be can be incredibly valuable if you know what to put in them, but but quite often, and and I teach a lot of sort of agile classes, people say, yeah, it's I understand what you're saying about we should build small bits of, of the product, put it in front of our customers, get their feedback, and then adapt based on their feedback, right? It's not rocket science. We keep trying things. We keep trying things. And we might end up somewhere different. But because we've shown it to our customers, it's the right place. Whereas if we just build the thing we thought, we can very efficiently build the wrong thing. Now, contracts, uh, and normally these contracts exist internally with the business and IT, or externally with a vendor who builds the thing you've asked them to build please build me this set of features uh, for this amount of money, right? And they say, yes. And then you get some feedback with your customers saying, oh, actually, um, it would be better if we did that. Right? And you say, ah, oh, but we can't do that because the contract says this. Um, and if you want to change that, then that's going to be a change request and we're going to sting you with extra fees. So let's just keep it as it was. So in the end, you end up being a slave to that original contract um, rather than building the right thing. And then you say, right, we delivered on time, on scope, on budget. Aren't we great? Not really because nobody likes your product. Uh, and, and I see this happening all the time. It's a, a particular problem when you have third-party vendors doing the building of the product. If you're internal, you can kind of get away with it because it's less expensive, right? But nobody said Agile was a cheap way of doing things. Right? It's not cheaper. It just means you end up in the right place. Um, and that's something I think we need to get our heads around. We see that all the time in military equipment, that exactly what you just described happens all the time. And then uh, I saw where they had to uh, scuttle five new ships because they didn't make those changes along the way because they said, well, hey, we just need to get this done based on what we've agreed to as opposed to making course correction changes while they were doing it. 
You yeah. had an example about what you can learn about large and small animal survival, which seems applicable to business. Can you explain yeah. that? I really like this. This is this is bringing the natural world in to make the point. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of evidence that um, mammals and reptiles in particular um, get bigger and bigger over time, right? Through the through the process of of natural selection. Um, various reasons for that, but there, there's a there's an inbuilt advantage to scale, right? You can store more resources so that you, know, you can survive the lean times. You can fight off um, other people um, when you're competing for a mate. You can fight off predators. You can cover larger distances. So. Being big is often an advantage in the animal kingdom, and we get bigger and bigger over time. You know, there was um, two-ton wombat in Australia. We, we've seen woolly mammoths. Um, we go back far enough. We've got um, Diplodocus, Apatosaurus, giant. Um, you scale of the scale of these dinosaurs is, is immense, right? Now, that's true while the environment stays largely stable, right? That competitive advantage exists, but when the environment changes. That's when it's reversed. That's when your competitive advantage becomes your liability. Uh, and this was never more apparent than 66 million years ago, uh, the Cretaceous Paleogene extinction event that was a nine mile wide asteroid slamming into the Gulf of Mexico and setting off a chain of events that wiped out 75% of life on Earth, including the dinosaurs, inclu including all animals and plants other than 25% that survived. Now, if you look at those that survived, they were all small. Um, about 25 kilograms was the biggest. That's 50, uh, 50 55 pounds for you folks. Um, uh, but they were largely cat size and below. Um, and the reason those smaller animals survived is because they were able to find shelter, they were able to forage, and they were able to reproduce more quickly, and they were able to adapt more quickly to that changing world. So when the environment is stable, bigger is better. Right. And we saw this in the 90, in the 20th century, these big organizations like Ford and like uh, U.S. Steel and who are built on efficiency, economies of scale, economies of scope, bigger, better, more efficient. But when the environment changes quickly, like that uh, Cretaceous Paleogene extinction event, like what we have now because the environment has changed, suddenly scale isn't your friend. Suddenly your ability to adapt more quickly, more easily, more cheaply than your competitors is what really counts. That's what business agility is. So we're saying, yeah, what worked in the 20th century worked then, but the environment is different now. It's very changeable. So you need different attributes. And many organizations still design themselves off um, the, you know, the old hierarchies and the old bureaucracies and the old command and control management styles that um, Henry Ford and Frederick, Frederick Winslow Taylor were, were espousing 120 years ago. And we think we're not there anymore. So I really like that parallel because it just really makes it, uh, makes it real for people. Are very interesting. You mentioned a lot about uh, General McChrystal. And many of our top generals have PhDs, and they seem to be more entrepreneurial uh, than they are old school military leaders that they constantly uh, ripping apart how they fought the last war, because they always say generals are always uh, fighting the last war, not the current war. So I, I find a lot of what you write in this book is very much applicable even how the military now operates and how they can be successful. You provide a history of management in the book and wrote about the reinvention of management. What will management look like over the next decade or two and what skills will be needed to succeed? So I think there's, there's, uh, there are a few things that the, the mindset shift, it's, it's stop focusing on the work itself. Your job as a manager is to create the environment for your teams and your people to do great work. So your job is to create that environment like a gardener, right? You've got to make sure there's the right level of soil and water and nutrients, um, and then the team will do their thing. So direction, uh, culture, vision, values, right? Focusing on getting those things right, business strategy. This is what leaders need to really focus on. And you need to let the people with the most information make the decisions about how to get there. And those people are the, the experts that you hire that do the work. They are closest to the work. They are closer to the customer. They are better placed to know how to get there. So your job is to set the direction, then get out of the way and decentralize as much decision-making as possible. Now, what's the key skill there? Communication around what we're trying to achieve and why it's important and coaching everybody to make them better. Right? Because the, the higher you go in the organization, the more your success depends on everyone else being really, really great. And the greatest leaders 
are those that can help everyone around them be really, really great, not just be really, really great themselves. Because what would you rather, one really, really great leader or a leader that enables everyone else to be great? So you mentioned Stanley McChrystal. I also talk about Captain David Marquet of the USS Santa Fe. Um, uh, that's my next and, question. <laughs> yeah, and, and so and so, go ahead. You know, turn the ship around in tent-based leadership. It's all of the stuff he talks about in that book. Yeah, I, I was just going to ask you to explain uh, that great example about the captain uh, who used leader-leader model because he wasn't familiar with the ship. Uh, and yeah. if you could talk about that uh, that leader-leader model uh, yeah. as a form of leadership and being more agile. Well, I guess you kind of answered that. You write uh, that everything starts with a leadership mindset. Can you please talk about the three uh, key mindset shifts in agile leadership? Sure. Well, I, I kind of touched on it in that last answer too, but let me run through them again. Um, it's um, because remember, when, when management was emerging, the problem that Frederick Winslow Taylor, Henry Fayol, Max Weber were trying to solve in the, in the late 19th and early 20th century was, how do I get this bunch of largely uneducated, low-skilled people to turn up, do what I say all day, then go home, right? So it was about compliance. It was about do what I say. We, we, we have a very different problem now. We're trying to create an environment where people can grasp abstract problems, solve complex problems. Uh, problems. Um, they can experiment, they can use their expertise. So we need to approach it differently. The first thing is to stop focusing on the work and how to do the work and start focusing on creating the environment. The second is, as I said, to decentralize as much decision-making as possible. Stop moving the information to the authority, i.e. putting it up to the managers and then pushing the commands down, and start moving the authority to the information. That is pushing the authority down to those who know exactly what needs to happen. And that's the people doing the work. And the third one is invest in growing the skills and capability of everyone around you. Because as I just said, the only the organizations where everybody is, is, is really great are going to succeed. And, and David Marquet talks about this. Instead of leader follower, it's leader leaders. He's, you know, he says, you know, don't take control and create followers, give control and create leaders. And, and if you've got you know, dozens, hundreds of leaders in your organization, isn't that better than having just one? Um, and so these, for me, the three key mindset shifts of agile leadership, but it's a very, very different time to be a manager than it was or, or back, back in, the, and that goes for management and leadership, to be honest. There, there's a great book called Startup Nation about how Israel was built in a very short period of time one of the two, I guess, uh, one of the top three innovation countries in the world. And they talk about that in the military, that all the decisions are made at the very front of the, the tip of the spear, not all the way in the back with a command and control. And they said that's why they were able to um, beat armies 10 times the size of them, because all the decisions were being made right there with information being fed to them about what they're seeing, let's say in the sky with drones or whatever that may be. Yeah. So I, I found that to be really interesting. Um, it's fascinating. The, 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 military, the military has known this since the, 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 the start of the 19th century. The, the Prussians discovered this um, during their battles when they got trounced by Napoleon, right? And they, they reinvented themselves to decentralize decision-making. This is where, um, you know, this is where uh, mission command comes from, right? Field Marshal Helmut von Moltke, the other. It's a fascinating sphere. We learn a lot from the military. Yeah, and all the new technology that comes out of the military because they're willing, yeah. the ones willing to make the investment and take the risk. Finally, what impact has COVID had on company innovation and recreation? And do you think it's permanent? They've realized that, in a sense, it's just accelerated what was happening already. And what was happening already was um, just doing what you were already doing really well is good, but it's not enough um, because the world changes quickly. And, 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 and the, the pandemic has been an, an incredible example of pivot, reinvent yourself or die. And around where I live, I live in the kind of the suburbs of North London. And you see these restaurants suddenly reinventing themselves as takeaway restaurants. You see all this innovation coming out from areas of like, oh, that's a really cool idea. You know, people doing home delivery services because you can't go out. And, you know, it's, it's really accelerated and really pressed home to people that they need to always innovate because every product, every service, every business model has a shelf life. We're seeing that shelf life go like this. COVID made it go like this in some areas, right? Um, so if you're not able to reinvent yourself, it's going to be incredibly difficult. So yes, I think that's permanent. It's had a massive impact on, um, on, on location as well, home working versus working in the office, because 
Microsoft did a massive study on this. For a lot of roles, working from home is fine. For the more creative, collaborative, innovation type roles, it can be a real challenge. And, and that's why Apple wants people back in the office. Right. So I think you're going to get two types of jobs where one is you can do it from anywhere in the world. The other is we actually really need to be sitting close to each other to do this. So I see I think you see a lot more homeworking um, people being able to hire from anywhere in the world across the country. My country is quite small. Yours is very big, but you get a much bigger pool. Right. Um, so I think the ability to innovate and the fact that you can now hire people who are somewhere else are going to be the two lasting. If that's not going away. Right. Um, and neither is Zoom, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Well, I'm thankful for that because. Uh, yeah, to, quite, quite. Yeah. We're able to carry on. Yeah. And we have listeners from 57 countries, so it couldn't have been done without Zoom. And we thank them for that. We thank you for uh, coming out today and giving us your time. Uh, from across the pond. Uh, Thanks for the having book me on. Is, uh, the book is spectacular and anybody should read it. It's one of those books you're going to end up reading a couple of times because there's so much information in it. And somebody wrote here that they're listening from South Africa. So uh, again, Kareem, uh, you, you may not have the hook shop, but you certainly have the chops when it comes to writing a quality book and your information. Thank you so much for having me. We'll look forward to the next book that you write. Yeah, don't say that in front of my wife. <laughs> <laughs> well again you have a new friend in philadelphia so i hope you'll come and visit thank you so much. everybody have a great rest of your weekend look forward to seeing you all next friday take care great thank you bye-bye thank you for listening to another episode of the best business minds tune in every friday at 12 p.m eastern time for our live recordings Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.